The Italian Wine Podcast is introducing a new donation drive this month. It's called Why Am I a Fan? We are encouraging anyone who tunes in on a regular basis to send us your 10-second video on why you are a fan of our podcast network or a specific show. We will then share your thoughts with the world with the goal of garnering support for our donation drive. Italian Wine Podcast is a publicly funded, sponsor-driven enterprise that needs you in order to continue to receive awesome free wine edutainment seven days a week. We are asking our listeners to donate to the Italian Wine Podcast by clicking either the GoFundMe link or the Patreon link found on italianwinepodcast.com. Remember, if you sign up as a monthly donor on our Patreon, we will send you a free IWP t-shirt and a copy of the Wine Democracy book, the newest Mama Jumbo Shrimp publication. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Listen in as we journey to some of Italy's most beautiful places in the company of those who know them best, the families who grow grapes and make fabulous wines. Through their stories, we will learn not just about their wines, but also about their ways of life, the local and regional foods and specialities that pair naturally with their wines, and the most beautiful places to visit. We have a wonderful journey of discovery ahead of us, and I hope you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today we travel to Rome to meet my guest, Monica Larner, who is a multiple prize-winning wine critic and writer. Monica is the Italian reviewer for The Wine Advocate, and erobertparker.com, the bi-monthly wine publication and website founded by Robert Parker. She is also the author of a number of books. Good morning, Monica. How are you today? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. Is it a beautiful day in Rome? Not today. It's pouring rain, but uh, we need the rain. So I guess you could call it a beautiful day. <laughs> ah, right. Well, it's a beautiful day here in southern England, so we've got things a bit the wrong way around for a change. <laughs> We had a lot of sun this summer, so... Yeah, you had a hot summer, didn't you? We had a very hot summer. Now, Monica, you've been a wine writer and critic for many years. You live in Rome. I'm sure everybody says to you that it must be the greatest job in the world. Please don't disenchant us and tell us that it's really a hard slog. How do you spend your days? Well, it is the greatest uh, job in the world, and I'm now entering my 20th year doing this. So it's been two decades of this uh, delightful job. Um, but you have to be careful what you wish for, because as much as I love wine, being a wine critic also involves uh, mostly logistics, uh, getting wines shipped to me, and then um, opening boxes, and most importantly, trying to dispose of all of the uh, cardboard, glass, and um, styrofoam that comes in packaging. Uh, and since I live in the center of Rome, garbage collection is an issue. So it's actually kind of challenging. Um, you know, you have to run around Rome to different garbage bins to try to distribute the large amount of waste. So it's a lot of logistics, unfortunately. That's the, the negative side. But the obviously the positive side is that um, I spend a good part of the year traveling to vineyards, tasting on site with producers, and basically getting to know, in a sense, the DNA uh, fingerprint of a vintage of a country every year of regions uh, of Italian wine. So it's a fascinating 
fascinating thing because every year it changes. Every year there's a new story to tell and every year there are new um, discoveries and adventures and, and people to meet. So it, it feels like even though I'm entering my 20th year doing this, it feels like the first year because there's always something to learn. Well, that's really interesting. Interesting to hear that logistical side of simply dealing with so many bottles of wine being sent to you, a problem many of us would like to have, but also to hear how you also spending your time really getting that intimate knowledge, not just a snapshot of now, but over 20 years. And I guess that's something I'd like to discuss a little later, Monica, is how Italian wine has evolved in two decades, because it's been some really considerable and exciting new developments. First of all, let me ask you, you've dedicated to your professional life to learning about tasting, enjoying, understanding Italian wines. What is so special what is the magic of Italian wines? It's um, multifaceted, but it is definitely a magic. And what it comes down to really is uh, biodiversity and the fact that Italy offers such a huge range of indigenous grapes and international grapes. So each one of those um, grapes becomes you know, a, a calling card for a place or a person or a culture or a little town. And all of this connects into regional cuisine and, and the diversity that we love about Italy. So having done this now for, for so many years, it's that, it's that narrow, it's the, the fact that the Italian grape, this biodiversity, this tiny little spherical fruit, this berry, can then become a narrator for a country. It tells the story of a country. So from the deep south of Italy to the far no north, you can travel throughout the country thanks to this, to this fruit and its many expressions. And that magic is connected to also what the Romans used to call genius loci, or the spirit of place. The French like to use the word terroir to describe this kind of mystical magic that makes one vineyard different from the next vineyard. But here in Italy, I feel like there is a greater magic that surrounds Italian wine. It's not just terroir, but there's a huge human factor because a lot of Italian wine is also connected to a contadino culture or a farmer's culture, a rural culture. Every little farmer makes has a small plot of vineyards and makes a little wine for domestic consumption. So there's even a greater level of depth and detail in the winemaking, that it's not just related to one class or one group of people. It is, it, is, it is throughout the society. And I think that has a lot to do with why people are so attracted to Italian wine, because you can find so many different expressions um, from so many different parts, uh, from parts of Italy. Yeah, I love that, Monica. I love the way you're saying that this biodiversity links not only places, but different periods of time, history, culture, gastronomy, and that within, from that grape that you describe, that biodiversity of so many different indigenous grapes, within a single bottle of wine, we can travel to, to so many different places. I guess, for me, that's that magic. You can travel in a bottle all around Italy in such a wonderful and genuine way. Absolutely. And it's it's that grape that becomes your guide, you know, your your it shows it shows you the way. I like to call it, I mean, I have this theory about what I like to call varietal voice that um 
every grape speaks of its region. And it's not dissimilar to how we view uh, Italy linguistically, that Italy is divided into so many different dialects. And you might have two towns relatively close to one another, and the populations have different words for uh, the same things. And in some cases, they have a hard time even understanding each other. But each one of those languages is so specific to an area. And there is a parallel with the grapes that Italy offers with this huge patrimony of indigenous grapes. They all speak their own language. They all have their own dialect. So I, I like that parallel between Italy linguistically and the taste of, uh, of Italian wine. Yes, I like that too, Monica. That does... I think, help our listeners to understand what is so special about Italy. And it's also interesting to consider how Italians are, can be so fiercely protective of their own tastes, their own grapes, their own wines, their own foods, preferring always their own local. Although maybe that's changing too. Italians are beginning to discover their own country now. Absolutely. And there's a greater awareness of... Um you know, what makes wine special and that magic that we, we just, we just uh, spoke about. And there's enormous pride, uh, especially because it's so well received in foreign markets. So Italian wine becomes an ambassador of Italian culture. And I think that we're seeing that, you know, we, we've noticed at, uh, at, at, at Robert Parker, Wine Advocate, an incredible interest in Italian wines. I mean, it, you know, there are practical reasons for that, because at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there were, you know, taxes against uh, French wine, and duties and whatnot. So there was a kind of a, a rush to explore new new wines um, and people went to Italian wine. But we noticed incredible frenetic activity in terms of what people were searching for. And it was all related to Italian wine, new regions like Alto Adige or Campania, not new regions, but regions that offer new tastes for people, not just, you know, um, Piedmont and, and Tuscany. And we noticed a lot of activity um, searching for unknown grapes and for different uh, smaller appellations and smaller territories. So it, it feels like, you know, in this post-COVID world, there is there's this, this idea of finding more expression and these nuances and this varietal voice seems to be really clicking with, with people in this moment. People internationally as well as in Italy itself? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we saw, you know, in, in the past um, year or so, we've seen this incredible return to tourism and, and, and you know, uh, traveling to little parts of little towns in Italy. And that goes mm -hmm. hand in hand with exploring the regional dishes and exploring the regional wines. There's been a huge boom, it feels like, this, uh, this summer in particular. I guess we were all so happy to be able to move around again. And it's made us appreciate what's accessible and literally on the doorstep sometimes. Absolutely. So, Monica, let's talk a little bit about um, how you actually go about assessing wines, writing about wines, um, assigning wines the all-important and vital Parker points. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the, the Parker 100-point system, the process you go through when assessing wines? How many wines, for example, do you taste in a year? So it is, it's a huge number. I taste up to 4,000 wines a year. Goodness me. Mm -hmm. So if you and those are published notes. So, you know, that means that I've worked 
uh, considerably on those 4,000 wines. Sure. So I, uh, so that comes down to about 11 wines per day. It's quite, uh, it's quite a number. We hopefully might be reducing that because um, we have been, I mean, again, connected with this general enthusiasm that we're seeing for Italian wine, but also that my colleagues are seeing in their regions in Spain and Germany and France and the United States. We seem to be getting um, more samples than we've ever received before. So hopefully we'll cut back a little bit because it's really quite, um, it's quite a job. But what happens is that I, I taste in different ways. I taste, uh, I would say about a fourth to a third of my samples. So that's a huge amount. Already we're talking about maybe a thousand wines directly at the estate. So I spend a good part of my year traveling. This year has been pretty intense in terms of the travel. I've been up and down Italy multiple times, it feels like, in my little red car driving. <laughs> and so you go and you try to make, uh, you make about six or five or six appointments per day. Usually you have a couple of hours with a producer. You end up always being late by the end of the day. I remember Robert Parker himself, you know, said, Monica, listen, what you got to do is you got to get a good night's sleep. Don't eat very much the night before. Have a good breakfast, and you just hit the wine road. I mean, it's 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 tiring, and, and it's it's a lot of work, but it's also exhilarating because you get to meet this fantastic people that are so passionate about what they do, and that passion rubs off on you, and it becomes really exciting to tell their story. So I love the winery visits, and as I said, I do them quite a bit. So we travel, you go, you visit with them, you taste through their new releases. You, if you have time, you go visit the vineyard. And then you're off to the next appointment. And then the other, I would say, probably either the remaining wines I either taste in my office in Rome. I have a, a ground floor office that makes it easier for deliveries to come. And pallets of wine are delivered and I open them and then slowly set up my flights. Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. Um, and sometimes I also taste either at a consortio, so a growers association, or some kind of an agency that will help me put together the samples. And usually they have a sommelier on hand that'll help pour and open them. And a lot of the, you know, the, the actual setting up of the tasting is, is taken care of by, by somebody else. But in the end, I think I almost work faster when I'm in my office, even though I have to do all the opening of the, of the bottles and, you know, all the, the logistics that I described before and getting rid of the, of the, you know, trying to recycle cardboard and glass and all of the other difficulties of living in the center of the city. Because in my office, I have my, my glasses, I have my temperatures, I have my, you know, my internet. I have my, I can work later, I can work on weekends. Um, you can go back to a wine, which is great because you want to see how it evolves after you've tasted it. You might want to go back a couple of hours later, maybe even a day later if you have doubts or you just want to see what, um, you know, what, how the wine reacts uh, with a little bit more air. So I really enjoy the home tastings and the, and the, and the estate visits. So it's pretty much divided up. We do a combination of blind tasting and also open tasting. Obviously, if I'm tasting at a producer, I know what I'm tasting as I'm sitting in front of the producer. But when I'm in my office, I mix it up a bit. Maybe I'll do the flights blind and then the wines that I like the best, I'll go back and taste again. I mean, in the end, when you write the notes, we do a lot of work on writing, um, not just the wine note. So not just the technical review of the wine with the, 
score. We also include a producer note. So we have a bit of history about that producer. Maybe they changed something or they bought new vineyard land or they enlarged their winery or whatever it is. So we try to include as much information as possible because, you know, the, I feel that the modern way of, of, of writing about wine is not just linked to the score, but you have to offer this color and context because people do want to travel, you know, as we said at the beginning of this interview, use that grape as the, you know, a guide. And so they want to know about the people behind the wine. And it's not just the technical note. And in this sense, I feel like wine criticism has changed a little bit from the time that Bob started because he was quite interested in the technical tasting and the score. But now the storytelling has become so important to communicating wine. And then when you're in front of the glass, you know, you are obviously looking for the classic, you're looking at the wine's appearance. Most of the note in the end uh, revolves around aromas and how the wine appears to your olfactory. So you're looking at primary fruit, you're looking at, um, you know, how, how intense that fruit is, how how clear it is, how beautiful it is. And then you're looking for the secondary aromas, which are connected to the aging of the wine. So you might get spice from um, oak barrel, or maybe you get kind of even earthy notes that might come from, a lot of people are using terracotta now and other um, aging vessels. And then you're also looking at the tertiary notes, which are the aromas that come with wine as it ages in time. Um, And those tend to be quite delicate and beautiful and complex and go into licorice and tar and smoke. So as the wine evolves in the bottle, all of these other nuances start to come out. And you have to do, it's a lot of guesswork, obviously, because you want to look at, um, at the potential of wine. So even Robert Parker, he he taught us when you know when 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 I worked with him is that a hundred point wine, so a wine that gets the perfect score, is a wine that will taste better in time. It's a wine that will improve with time. So you're giving a score to something that you don't even really see yet because you're so confident because of the tannins, because of the acidity, because of the brightness and you know clarity of aromas that you can bet on that wine to become even more beautiful with aging. And there you have a perfect wine. There you start to feel, okay, this is a wine that I can get behind uh, and give a perfect score to. And it's a very difficult thing because, um, again, you know, wine scoring is probably 95% the technique because you're looking for, as I said, those characteristics of the wine. And then there's a small element of 5% or 10% that's just emotion. And you just know it when you feel it. I mean, it's, you know, I, I literally feel that when you're in front of a wine that excites you so much, it's as if, you know, those clouds over Rome part and the sunbeams come down and the angels start singing and you think, oh my God, this is just a wine that blows me away. And I am now, you know, uh, endowed with this strength, this courage and this confidence to say, I'm going to say this is a hundred point wine. So it's kind of an emotional process, really. It, you know, it happens quite rarely. And, uh, and when you have that feeling that, this wine has met all of your expectations and given you that emotion and you feel like it, it could become even better with time, that's when you think, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's such a fascinating insight into this whole process of, of, of tasting. And I just love that, that you still have this fairly high proportion of emotion and how a wine feels because wine is such a a sensuous experience and uh, it has to be not 
completely an objective uh, evaluation. Um, so I, I really um, love to hear how you sometimes just feel a wine. Absolutely, it also has to it has to stimulate you know you intellectually, and and that's where we tie back into the concept of Italian wine, and how much there is to learn, you know, how much more we have in front of us to understand about Italian wine. I mean, one thing that I, I like to say is that Italian wine represents a beginning. You know, it's, it is all of that genetic material, all of these grapes. We don't even really know yet what we have. We don't even know the potential because many of these grapes have not benefited from the research and the attention that, say, the noble grapes of France, like Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay have had, because those grapes have been tested over time. And we know what their potential is. We know how great those grapes can be. But with many, many hundreds, dozens of Italian grapes, we have no idea. And maybe many of them will not yield great results. A lot of them are very particular, but maybe in that huge uh, mess of genetic material, we have what we need to go forward in time. And, 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 and that's why I say Italian wine, in a sense, is a beginning. We we don't even know yet what, what we have in front of us. Well, that's really fascinating because Italy is one of the, of course, one of the oldest and most ancient wine-producing countries in the world. But at the same time, it's an exciting, it's almost like a new world country with regions such as Etna, only in the last two decades, really coming onto the world stage or the Campi Flegre or so many areas that... Um, are ancient, have had vines growing for literally centuries and millennia, but which are being discovered now. That must be incredibly exciting for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those are two regions. The two regions you just mentioned are, have been, they've given me a lot of passion this year. Etna is, I feel very um, proud of the work that uh, I've been able to do on Etna because I've been going there for so long and I've, I've watched, I mean, I, it's really the one region I can say I've watched it grow from the beginning, you know, this kind of uh, this symbolic uh, proverbial volcano, right, that's exploding with the popularity of its wines. And, and, I, and I'm even more excited that Etna is not just the, you know, a discovery or, or new wine region. There are new discoveries within Etna. For example, now there's a lot of work being done on the Caricante grape, yes. which is showing amazing results. So, you know, um, you think, all right, maybe I approach Etna as a red wine region, but now we're beginning to think, hey, wait, we have amazing, beautiful white wines coming from Etna that are showing the capacity to age and some rosés that are absolutely delightful. Of course, they all reflect that salinity, that mineral tone that Etna offers. And it just works so beautifully with all the foods and fish and the lighter fare that we want to eat today. Because, you know, I mean, we we had um, this summer, we, we experienced five months of extreme heat. So I feel that people didn't really want to drink red wines as much, you know, for half the year. And we sure. want to light, we want to eat lighter fare and, and you know, more fresh foods from local farms with more vegetables. And so there's a pretty exciting new chapter for Italian white wines that we are just beginning to really see that this is going to be, I think there's a lot of potential potential there. And again, you know, talking about Italy as a beginning with this, um, with this genetic patrimony that, that is there, it ties into the idea of climate change because 
within these grapes. There are the grapes that might withstand more humidity or are more drought resistant or, you know, have have the elements, the thicker skins or the relationship between the pulp and the skins and the stems and all of these little factors that maybe as we go forward, we will find grapes better matched to territory in the context of a changing climate. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, especially with these last few summers that have really emphasized again and again. If you're involved in the world of wine, you can't doubt that this is happening and happening very quickly. Yes, this was a this this summer was everybody was talking about it, and it feels like we've had you know a couple of years of maybe increased number of hailstorms in Barolo. We've had record heat in Sicily. We've had these frost events in on the coastal Tuscany. We've had you know drought and dry soils, and we've had you know an increase of certain uh, diseases in the vineyards because the vineyards become more vulnerable when they're stressed by by the climate. So we've definitely, this summer was pretty much um, a flashing warning sign that we have to be really careful. Yes, absolutely. Now, Monica, you talked about uh, the joy of traveling around Italy in your red car, going to vineyards, meeting producers. Uh, and I'm imagining, although with six appointments a day, it's rather difficult, I'm imagining long wonderful lunches with lots of wines and conversation and sunshine. Um, Italian wine and Italian food are so linked together, more so perhaps in other wine producing countries. Is that important for you when you're assessing wines, how the wines naturally pair with foods, that wines in Italy more than anywhere have to be food friendly? Italians drink wine with food. Absolutely. And in fact, um, another part of my style, let's say, of, of wine writing is that as often as possible, I try to put in a food pairing suggestion in the review. So I'll say something like, you know, this Tuscan red has the volume and the density and the concentration plus the freshness to pair across something like, you know, a pappardelle with a wild boar sauce or, you know, something that kind of gives the idea of the taste of that wine because because even people that don't know wine as well, they know what, you know, the, what those savory flavors and what, you know, how the mouth reacts when it has pasta, the softness of it. And you need something with acidity to counter that or cheese, um, grated cheese. I mean, all these little elements are all kind of part of how we interpret, you know, our, our taste and, and how we put it all together. So I, I like to talk about wine very much in context with the food. And Italy, of course, is just natural stomping grounds for this because there's an endless supply of amazing dishes to talk about. And Absolutely. on a personal level, of course, I that's one of the things that attracts me most Italy. I love to cook. I love to pair wine. I love to have, you know, big tables set. I'm just crazy about the whole culture that surrounds the table from, as I said, from the from the settings to the dishes to the time spent to making sure that that, you know, the progression of pairings 
is is equally matched to what the dishes are and ending with like a nice dessert wine or whatever. Yes, when I'm but but I will say that when I'm on the road for work, uh, those long proverbial long lunches are few and far between because um, yes, alas, alas, exactly. (laughs) You have to really concentrate on the work and not get uh, tired in the afternoon if you have another three visits uh, left. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Now, Monica, I, um, I guess in 20 years ago when you began uh, doing this uh, work, the main classic quality Italian wine regions were Barolo, Barbaresco, Tuscany, uh, Bulgari coming in uh, with Brunello and Chianti. Uh, Italy's changed, and you've been, you've been keen to champion other regions uh, that we've discussed a few. Can you tell us? perhaps where you think the next uh, really exciting uh, discovery will be? Yes. So this is a question I get asked a lot. And I I feel that the best way to answer that is that um, the next exciting regions of Italian wine will be inside the regions. And by that, I mean that Italy is doing an incredible job of mapping out its smaller micro zones and micro territories. So, for example, if you take Chianti Classico, they have now, um, they, the denominations, the appellation now works according to village. So you might have wines from yes. Greve in Chianti or Panzano in Chianti, Castellina in Chianti, Rada in Chianti, Castelnuovo Berardenga. And each one of those villages within the greater Chianti Classico ap- appellation now is really beginning to show its own special characteristics. And it's our job as wine writers and as consumers to begin to really understand that nuance there. So I think that the the exciting new territories of Italian wine to to discover are the the microzones within the larger territories. So if you look at Chianti Classico, if you look at Sicily, they've also done a very good job of, you know, of parsing up the the island according to grape and territory and microclimate. Um, So now you don't just talk about a Sicilian wine is a big umbrella. You would talk. You talk about Etna. You talk about Noto. You talk about Memphi. You talk about you know the areas outside of Palermo. So I mean, it, every region of Italian wine is becoming. Um, you know, there's a microscope that's we're beginning to focus in on the micro territories or Campania. You mentioned the Campi Flegre. You have Benevento. You have the Salerno. You have Irpinia. In each one of those, in Campania, is its own unique expression. And you can apply that to basically any Italian territory. Um, and I think that's where the exciting work is now, is in trying to bring out the character of each one of those tiny terriers, territories within the larger territories. Yes, that's absolutely fascinating. And and it adds a whole nother tier of enjoyment to the wine lover. Mm-hmm. And understanding. And again, yeah. it, it goes right back to what we were saying at the beginning is that that biodiversity reflects either through the voice, the varietal voice, uh, that, that, that sense of place, that, you know, that uh, spirit of place, the genius loci of, of, yes. uh, of, of Italian wine. Final question, Monica. After a hard day's tasting wines, what do you do to relax in the evening? I imagine that you pour yourself a nice glass of wine. <laughs> I do, actually. So it's not, I mean, sometimes people say, oh, do you drink beer at the end of the day? No, no. Usually what I do is I take my favorite bottle from the 
from the day's tasting and I bring it up to my kitchen when I start cooking and I think, oh, I'm going to go back and take a look at this, you know, and enjoy it. Yeah. So I, I have never, even after a hard day of, of tasting, I still enjoy a glass of wine at the end of the day. It actually is a beautiful way to end up. <laughs> And a day of tasting. Well, Monica, it's been a real pleasure meeting you, talking with you this morning, learning about your life. And you've given us a huge amount of insight into how to discover and enjoy Italian wines. You're doing this professionally, but I can tell as well that this is a personal passion and you're enjoying every minute of it. So it's been great to to meet you and speak with you. And I hope we can actually meet over a glass of wine sometime soon. Oh, that would be great. Mark, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, Monica. Bye for now. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin.